It's a chance to at least get some information in front of you. I promise you we won't inundate you with uh, some sort of routine series of emails, but it will be something that will connect you to access um, or give you access to some information. Also, at the end of the sermon, I'm going to point someone out to you this morning. At the end of the morning that I want you to meet this morning, if you're here for the first time, um, Clay Petzold is going to uh, be in the other building passing these out, a little welcome packet. It's got all kind of information about our church in there. It's also, as of this week, and I don't want to see any members taking this bag, it's also got lunch or dinner, mostly on us um, at Chick-fil-A, specifically Chick-fil-A. You can't go somewhere else with it. It's a, it's a little gift card to Chick-fil-A. So you can sit over a meal that's mostly, if not completely, provided by us to look through what's in this packet. The purpose is not to present some sort of carrot to entice you to be part of our church. It's just to be a blessing to you, to give you a time to sit and consider, hey, what did we just visit? And what do they believe? And what are they all about? So if you haven't, um, or if, if this is your first morning to be here this morning, uh, be sure you grab one of these in the other building with Clay afterwards. And I'll point Clay out afterwards. And also, um, if you're here for the first time and you have little ones and you're accustomed to children's church and you're like, hey, man, where's children's church? And you're like, oh, we don't have that. Then we have some help for you in the pew. I know they're not pews, the seats. Uh, these are for our visitors. These aren't for our church family members. <laughs> you ought to know better. You got work to do to prepare for a Sunday. But folks that just walk in here for the first time, like, hey, I didn't know that my kids weren't going to go off somewhere. This is something to help you. It's just a little kit, a little packet to help with that. So we won't spend a lot of time doing that from week to week, but we're trying to introduce you to some, some resources um, for our first-time visitors. And before long, I think our church family will just, these things will take on a life of their own to where our church family directs our future visitors to those things. But I want to take a moment to share those first this morning. Let me begin in, with prayer, and we will jump into Hebrews chapter 13 this morning. God, we are thankful uh, in advance. I want to thank you for the opportunity um, of considering uh, leadership in the church. Uh, Biblically, we have a chance to make sense of what your design is, your best for the church and your best for leadership and your best intent um, for the kind of leaders that should be leading churches, um, what people should look for in a leader what churches should expect of their leadership, and what a wonderful resource, not just in the present, but in the future, current leadership will be. I'm just thankful for this passage in Hebrews 13 that shows us so much about what you've given us in past leadership. People that I've heard over the years, like Bob Hamilton, preaching for a long time expositionally in our community, People like Ralph Anderson at Aldersgate, and people like men like Bobby Renfro at Highland Terrace, and then the countless men and women who have poured into children and young people in Bible studies, Sunday schools for decades. Lord, this morning we celebrate that leadership. We enjoy that leadership. We remember, we consider, and we want to imitate that leadership. Lord, I... um, With a real sense of humor, I turn this time over to you in Christ's name. Amen. I say a sense of humor because a sermon on leadership and being one of those, at least at this particular church, I better have a sense of humor, and y'all better too. So 
we're going to climb into Hebrews chapter 13. You already, if you've been here for a period of time, you already qualify for having a sense of humor for putting up with the likes of us. So you think you're in good shape. Hebrews chapter 13. We've been on a journey through the book of Hebrews the last few years. It's probably been three years now, something like that. And we're coming, coming to a close in Hebrews here in these next few weeks. We're in the last chapter right now, and we're in a section of the chapter that you could call almost a genre called paranesis. It's a type of writing that involves like a lots of advice-type instruction that's more than advice. In fact, they're littered with, um, riddled with uh, what are called imperatives. You know, somebody says, it's imperative that you hear this. Well, there's a Greek um, usage of a word that's called an imperative that's as if you could put an exclamation point after it. And this chapter 13 is full of imperatives. And this, this strong advice from the Hebrews pastor, preacher, shepherd, to his church family in light of Jesus as high priest. It's not just a book of to-dos. It's, a, it, it, it's in many ways capturing all that we have in Christ as our high priest and how we should respond as the church. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. And this chapter has lots of very practical application for us in this section of what we would call this chapter full of paranesis. Um, these next few weeks, we're going to be studying verses 7 through 19. We're going to be breaking it down over the next few weeks and sort of grabbing it in pieces to make sense of it. It's too much to capture in one sermon, and it, there are some themes in there. And the, this morning, the theme is leadership. And the theme, in fact, connects to, this morning's theme connects to what we would call bookends on this passage. Verses 7 and 17, in many ways, are bookends around a section of Scripture that's dealing with false teaching that's crept into this church or some sort of false teaching that's influenced their faith. So here in this passage, we have to keep that in view as we're talking about good leadership this morning. We're going to next week consider bad leadership and poor teaching and false teaching and how the church should protect ourselves from that and how we should handle that. But this morning, we're really looking at the positive side of that, looking especially in verses 7 and 8 and 17 this morning. So I'll read those passages, and I have a plan. And man, I'm telling you, it's crazy how every single week I feel like I'm flying a brand new plane. It's not an instrument panel I'm even familiar with. It's like brand new. And this never becomes old hat because the passages are different. And this one, this sermon in many ways became... I disassembled it within the last hour and a half and then reassembled it. And my my notes are color-coded. That's how bad it is for me. to. They're color-coded in case I passed out a copy of my notes to someone that was asking this morning. I had to make sure I made a color copy because they are color-coded that you won't make sense of it unless you're following the colors. So hopefully I can follow the colors and fly this plane these next few minutes. It's not a complicated message, not a complicated passage. But I want you to get it as it's exposed. We're going to apply, and we're going to expose some more and apply. I don't normally do that. I'm pretty predictable in how I handle a passage. I usually expose and apply, but we're doing that in two chunks this morning. We're going to expose verse 7 and apply it. And we're going to expose verse 17 and then apply it. And we're going to do that 
according to the colors on my notes. All right, let me read these passages and then we'll climb in. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And I'm going to read verse 8 here because I want you to just notice how abrupt it is. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Why that's there and the point of that verse we're going to save to the very end. That's dessert this morning. But verse 7 is where I want to spend these next few minutes. And then we'll come to verse 17. I want to unpack verse 7. In some ways I want to unpack the luggage or I want to point out the furniture in this passage so that we can sit in this room of furniture and enjoy what we're seeing. First of all, there are three verbs here that I want to call to attention. Remember, consider, and imitate. Now, technically, the word consider is not a verb. It's a participle, but that's a verbal noun. So you English teachers or somebody that has access to the Greek, just so you know, that is a verbal. That's why it's translated here. Consider, it's a verbal type word. So we're going to consider three verbs. Remember, consider, and imitate. All three of these words are either imperatives, or in the case of the participle, is an imperative force. So you could put exclamation points after these words. Remember, consider, and imitate, specifically, past tense leaders. This church, 2,000 years ago, is encouraged not only to remember people that were heroes of the faith in chapter 11, a host of witnesses as they're running the race of faith, but they're also encouraged here in this passage to remember those who led them before, not who are there with them now. They're past leaders who had then gone on to be with the Lord. There's some past tense sort of words here that point back, like remember, it's not a past tense verb, but it's remember suggests that it's you're thinking back on something, and the, the word spoke tells us we're talking about people that spoke the word to them in the past. Now, turn over to the only, I think the only, maybe one of two satellites I have this morning. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. We're going to try and figure out who these people are. Okay? These past tense leaders. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, take us to really the theme of the book in a lot of ways. The theme of the book is, listen up, Hebrews church. You've stopped listening, or you're in danger of not listening to the message. So chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, take them back to the importance of the message. Listen to what's said here. Therefore, Hebrews church, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Now watch what he says here in these next two verses. For since the message declared to us by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Now, the two words I want you to connect there are message and salvation. Now, watch what what happens next. It was declared at first by the Lord. The message of salvation at first was declared by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. Now, these past leaders that this passage over here in chapter 13 is referring to are these people right here in chapter 2, verse 3, 
that attested to the message of salvation to them in the first generation of this church. We are likely here in the book of Hebrews talking about a second generation or third generation church. Their parents heard the teaching either directly from Jesus or from the apostles, and they are what we would call the first generation believers. And they attested to the second generation, the context of the the letter itself, to what they heard directly from the Lord. Now, something that I want to connect here is this chapter 13. You can go back there. Chapter 13, this passage here, of those who spoke to you the word of God. This phrase, spoke to you the word of God, is used frequently throughout our New Testament to refer to specifically preaching. It's not just somebody talking in their home about Jesus. Those are good things. But here this phrase points toward preaching. So in the strictest sense, this Hebrews preacher is encouraging his church, who's considering bailing on Christianity altogether because it's hard, to remember those who preached the word to you. And we could connect it to this chapter 2, verse 3 passage as well. Those who preached to you and attested to you the message of salvation. Now, there's something really, really cool that comes out of here, realizing that in some ways the phrase, the message of salvation, and the word of the Lord are used interchangeably in this book. The preaching of the word of the Lord and attesting to the message of salvation are used interchangeably. So what you can realize is that what we're doing here every single week where we are preaching the word of the Lord is that what you're hearing is the message of salvation. There's a wonderful theology of preaching that comes from this passage. From taking the time to do the work. When you show up on Sundays, you're not just hearing a talky-talk. You're hearing the message of salvation. The Hebrews preacher is reminding them of those who attested to the message of salvation. And those who, in chapter 13, verse 7, preached the word of God to them. Wonderful theology of preaching. He encourages them to remember these people and secondly, to consider the outcome of their way of life. This word consider is present tense as the word remember is present tense. So what this should tell us, if we take the time to really think about it, it suggests that he's telling the Hebrews church, present tense, they should remember and consider their former leaders regularly. It shouldn't be a rare occasion where they think back on those who attested to them the message of salvation, that they will find a strength in considering their former leaders who preached the word of God to them. Man, there's a wonderful encouragement, wonderful strength that comes from this. And he says, consider specifically the outcome of their way of life. What it means literally is consider their end. It may mean their death. It may mean how they died, but it probably, in more general sense, means consider their last chapter. Consider the last chapter of how they lived out their life, where their faith landed them. This would be a good impetus to consider that how you finish has, is of great importance. Consider specifically their end, the outcome of their way of life, Your final chapter matters. You could be a superstar right now. 
But what future church will think back on is how we finished, how we finished our last chapter. Consider those who preached the word, attested the word of salvation. Consider their outcome of their way of life, how their last chapter landed them, how they finished the race. And then third, imitate their faith. Imitate their faith. Now, I have a treat for you. In the book of Hebrews, this is something that really surprised me. In the book of Hebrews, there's not a a direct encouragement to follow Jesus. Now, if you're paying attention, you're thinking, huh, what, wait a minute. There's not a real strong development to follow Jesus in the book of Hebrews. The encouragement in the book of Hebrews is to follow those whose faith is worth following. The encouragement in the book of Hebrews is to imitate the faithful. And what's really developed is the bigger picture is that we are following Christ in so much as we are imitating the faithful. I'll show you another little picture here in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 12. Since we're right here in this book, since it's handy, let's just turn and look at it. I'll start in verse 11. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. There's not only this mention here, but there's an entire chapter dedicated to people that are imitatable. Chapter 11, the heroes of the faith. There's an encouragement in this book is that you are following Jesus in so much as you are following and imitating specifically the faithful. The Hebrews preacher is not the first guy to suggest this. Paul in, in 2 Thessalonians has a couple of different verses that encourage it. For you yourselves know that you ought to imitate us. Scott and I were laughing about that in my office a few minutes ago. You got to have a sense of humor. What a bold statement. Paul makes a few statements where he says, imitate me. And I'm saying, man, I'd have a tough time saying that. We'll let the words say it. You yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. In verse 9 of chapter 3, it was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. Philippians 3.17, he says, brothers... This is the boldest statement Scott pointed out. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Man, even John is on this imitation theme in chapter or in the third letter from John. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. This encouragement to imitate really brings, I think, makes it very practical, the notion of following Jesus. Somebody says, hey, man, how do I go about following Jesus? You say, well, imitate the ones who are doing it well. Imitate the ones who are faithful and worthy of imitation and that you are following Christ in so much as you are imitating the faithful. Now, time for application. Go over my color-coded here. Application from this one verse, verse 7. We're going to save verse 8 for the end. Remember, that's dessert. Application, present tense application for past tense leaders. That's what this little section is called. 
present tense application regarding past tense leaders. First of all, we can learn from this passage that we just unpacked, the furniture that we just pointed out around the room, the luggage that we just unpacked, is that first of all, leaders' lives should reflect the spoken message. We're not talking about your boss at L3 here, although he might share the word. We're not talking about a mayor. We're not talking about a civic leader in any sort. We are talking about leadership in the church, and leadership in the church, if true, is attesting to the message of salvation and is preaching the word of God. Man, they better attest to the message of salvation. Their lives should reflect a spoken message first. Secondly, in considering the outcome of their way of life, leaders should have faith that's observable. One of the first encouragements I had from a local leader, it was a church leader, unfortunately, not a church leader here, when I first moved to Greenville, is he encouraged me over lunch. He said, don't let your people get too close to you because familiarity breeds contempt. What bad counsel. What bad counsel. Our church grew over our table, dinner table, the Cardwell's dinner table, the Sutton's dinner table, and many of you others. If familiarity breeds contempt, then man, wow, we hate each other because we're really familiar with each other. And you know what? It hadn't bred contempt. It's bred observable lives where you can see faith playing out in people that are frail, feeble, and broken, but you see movement. Man, leaders should demonstrate that. I... One of my goals as a leader from the beginning here at this church in ministry has been to be the same man right here that I am in my den, that I am in a duck blind, that I am on my bicycle. And I don't always adhere to that, but I want to be that because I want faith to be observable, at least in this leader, because it's, it matters apparently. You have to be able to see the outcome of their way of life. We should be an approachable open book. And third, our lives should be worth imitating. Faith should be worth imitating in leaders. I was thinking back in my life story, thinking back to people, leaders in my past who I would who come to mind as I'm thinking about my story. I had four people that came to mind. Two of the four have passed away. Two, I would say, are in their final chapter. The first is a man named Roger Richards. He was the fiery preacher when I came to know the Lord. I grew up my earliest years under his preaching. He baptized me at the age of six. He, this man, apart from being a wonderful preacher that could even hold my attention um, at a very young age, he was fit. He, would, he was a marathoner, and he would train for marathons. He'd go on these long runs before he would show up to preach. 15-mile run, you know, before he goes and preaches. And it just taught me that you could be fit and tough and in the pulpit, and you don't have to be an over-potlucked preacher. (laughs) Among other things I learned from him. I thought back to a guy named Charles Cowley, who was a minister of education when I was growing up. Some of you used to watch Saturday Night Live or may still Chevy Chase, back in the day when Chevy Chase was announcing live from New York at Saturday Night Live, or whatever, he wouldn't say Saturday Night Live, live from New York at Saturday Night, 
he would fall or trip. That was about part of his shtick. You know, he would fall and then recover from his fall and announce Saturday Night Live. This guy would do that going up to make announcements. In a suit, I mean, I grew up in a very formal church environment where everybody wore, I wore a J.C. Penney, you know, husky-sized suit <laughs> every week. And this guy would wear a three-piece suit or whatever, you know, and he's walking up to make announcements as the minister of education does in a very typical traditional church. And I remember eight or ten times over the course of my time growing up where he would fall and do a face plant to where everybody in the room would go, <gasps> and then all the time you're wondering, did he try to do that? He's also the same guy that during our hymns, as we're singing, I would notice about half the time, if not more than half the time, he's sitting holding his hymnal upside down, just singing, <laughs> singing, looking, and it's upside down. You can see the number, the letters and everything are upside down. But he taught me that faith could be fun, that faith didn't have to be a bore. This guy, Charles Cowley, was faithful. I think about my surrogate granddad named Jack Holt. He was a judge in the community in which we grew up. My real grandfather passed away when I was one, so I never knew either of my grandfathers, in fact. And this man, he was a leader for our family because he spoke the word of God. His life was observable. His faith was worth imitating. I have a short list, but I have a list. Fourth on my list, I think of all these faithful Ladies that are pouring into our children was a woman named Mrs. Winters. Sat down with me in one of those little bitty overbuilt chairs that an elephant could sit in. Those old church traditional chairs that was just like... <sighs> she sat down in one of those with me and I sat across from her. And at the age of six, she shared what it meant to follow Christ. What it, what it meant that you had sinned and what Christ had done for us. She was my royal ambassador's teacher and she was faithful to teach little kids for years. And she's on my list. And I want to ask you a question right now. Who's on yours? Do you remember them? Do you consider them? Do you imitate them? I realize as we're talking here that in many ways we're a first-generation church. I'm among the first three elders at Crosspoint Fellowship. In many ways, we're a first-generation church. So many of you may not have many people on your list, people who spoke the message to you, people whose lives were observable, and people whose faith was imitatable. And if you have a short list or you have no one on your list, here's an idea for you. Let's be someone's list. This, this term here, this leader, this leader, you know, in verse 7, it points toward people who were preaching. But verse 17, you'll see in a few moments, is not limited to the preachers. Verse 17 is pointing to those. It opens it up. It expands it to royal ambassadors, teachers like Mrs. Winters. It expands it to our Bible study teachers who may be over-teaching little bitty ones right now. It expands it into our Wednesday night teachers who teach so faithfully. Let's be someone else's list. It's not just elders. It's as deacons. Together, we can, life group shepherds, we can be someone's list if your list is short. And here's some things to consider as you 
might be chewing on that notion right now. Could I be on someone else's list? First of all, we have to lead. In order to be on someone's list of leaders, you have to lead. You have to take some responsibility. Even though you feel inadequate and feeble, there is not a single Sunday that I stand here that I don't feel those two things. I don't know of a leader that doesn't feel that. But then you step out anyway, feeling inadequate and feeble, but trusting a big God who's bigger and better than you, who might just work through you. First of all, you have to be willing to take responsibility and to lead. And second of all, you have to speak God's word and attest to the message of salvation in order to be a leader worth remembering. You have to have a message worth remembering. You have to have a life that's faithful and observable of all things. And you have to have a faith that's worth imitating. And here's a notion to kind of connect all those things together that I think would really help in our day and age of such turnover where people are moving and moving to different churches or moving to different towns and doing different things and just you know this, this mobility that we experience that they wouldn't have experienced is let's stick at some of these things for decades. Let's start there. Let's stick at some of these things for decades. Leading for decades. Speaking and attesting to the message of salvation for decades. For think instead of seasons like, I think I'll teach some kids this spring. Let me take out this spring and let's insert this decade. I think I will do the best I can to to pour into the next generation by giving you all that I've got right now as long as I possibly can stand and deliver. Instead of thinking, I think I'll try this for a short period of time, what a wonderful bond would be built pouring into children for decades and then teaching their children. What a wonderful, wonderful list you'll become for someone else when you pour into people for decades. Deaconing and eldering the same people for decades, what a notion. The turnover for most pastorates, I think, is about a year and a half. It's hard to be on somebody's list when you've got a year and a half investment in somebody's life. How about 10 and a half? How about 15, 20? How about your whole life? Man, being on somebody's list is going to cost you something. But it's valuable. What a valuable outcome to give our children and their children a list of people they can rattle off past leaders to remember, to have that strength to grab, past leaders to consider, and past leaders to imitate. Man, I want us to be that together. Now, let me go back to my notes, find where in the world, where in the wide world of sports I am. Part two of the sermon. Where'd my color code? Part two of the sermon, we're going to unpack verse 17. We're going to save verse 8 for the dessert. Let's unpack verse 17 together of chapter 13. If the first part of the sermon dealt with past tense leaders that we are to remember, consider, and imitate, this deals with present tense leaders. And here's where I really want to have a sense of humor. I'm not going to be jokey. That's not what I'm suggesting. But I have a sense of humor as I'm preaching this verse. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. As those who will have to give an account, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, 
for that would be of no advantage to you. This is dealing with present tense leaders. These are also imperatives, obey and submit. Leaders here, as I just explained in this passage, does not deal only with elders, but deals with anybody that's serving in some sort of responsibility in the church. It can be teaching little children. It can be deacon. It can be life group shepherds. All of those people, Bible study teachers, all of those are included in these leaders. Now, I would also include shepherds of homes, given the overlap between church and home. So that should almost, in many ways, at least import every single man into this, or most men in this room, into this passage, and their families. The word here, obey, is actually interesting. It, uh, it's not the word that's often used, usually used in our New Testaments for obeying authority, for authority's sake. This word, obey, is different, and it's the only place it's used here in this book, or here in this letter, it means here the obedience that's won through persuasive conversation and the obedience that follows from it. So this word, as you're reading it, as you're hearing it, you're thinking, well, this is just all about me following that leader. This also speaks to the leader. Because what's communicated and implied here in this, an obedience that's won through persuasive conversation, an obedience that follows from it, it implies a respect that's won through persuasive, you could even say winsome, leadership. So this isn't just about the following. It's also for the leaders in this room that we can work at being winsome. We can work at being friendly. Man, I need to work on that. Golly. But what a sweet thing that we can be Persuasive in a way that makes it easier to follow. It suggests that present tense leaders should work at being winsome and persuasive, not in a peddling sort of way, not peddling God's word, but in a way that has charisma, in a way that's attractive, in a friendly sort of way. Man, I want to be that kind of leader. I want you to be that kind of leader as you lead this other imperative here is the word submit. And this word submit suggests habitual readiness to comply. It's used in military type settings in their context, in that language, in that um, context of the passage. And it seems to give some room for questioning at times, but habitually being submissive. Habitually not habitually questioning, but being habitually submissive. Give some room to ask questions, man. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be, but don't be habitually the one that's questioning authority. Now, these commands, as I'm considering them 2,000 years ago, suggest that these people 2,000 years ago were made of the same stuff that folks are made of in our modern times. They're made of stuff that resists leadership, like individualism, and independence and stubbornness. I find that these aren't new things. These aren't just modern notions, but resistance to leadership is as old as Eden. The nation of Israel did a beautiful job of showing how stiff-necked people not can be, but people are, and people can be hard to lead. So I imagine that there, I can't imagine that there are people who don't need to be reminded about this, about not only our nature, but be encouraged 
to obey and submit. One of the things I noticed here, too, is that there's no obvious caveats. He doesn't work real hard at developing the idea that obey and submit only if they're superior in every way. There are no caveats that are clearly stated. There's one that's implied. But for some reason, he doesn't work real hard at giving them an out for following God's leadership. There is an implied caveat, though, and we have to work a little harder at this. We remember the context that in the middle of this, these bookends, is dealing with some sort of false teaching that's crept into the church. And maybe due to these various strange teachings, there appears to be some sort of strain between current leadership and the current church. And here he's speaking to them, encouraging them to follow these guys because they're like the ones in front of them who attested to the word of salvation, who preached the word, and their authority comes from preaching the word faithfully. Not about necessarily how easy they are to follow. It's implying in context that if they're preaching the word and the message of salvation, obey and submit and follow them, period. If there's a caveat for not following godly, or excuse me, church leadership, it's if they're not preaching the word. Don't follow them. But if they're preaching the word, man, hook, line, and sinker, habitually submissive, eager to follow, obeying, and submitting. Now, application. The application for this passage is pretty easy. Obey your church leadership. We don't have to work real hard at that. I mean, at least making sense of what's being said there. Submit to your church leadership. Ideally, church leadership is approachable, attentive, and listening to God's people at all times. Ideally, church leadership is gentle, true, and growing in what we're preaching. Ideally, like those we're encouraged to remember, we're speaking God's word, the message of salvation to you, and our faith is observable and imitatable. And ideally, with all of those things in place, we can make it easier. Notice I didn't say easy, because it's not easy following anybody. <laughs> but hopefully we can make it easier to follow. What should help you is the realization of two things that come from this passage. First, God's leaders are looking out for you and will have to give an account to our Lord for our movement. And that's true from this pulpit to our teachers who are teaching our children over there, to our life group shepherds, to our deacons, everybody that has responsibility in the church. Our, God's leaders are looking out for you and will have to give an account to our Lord for our movement. I expect to hear two questions when I see the Lord. First... What did you do with that wonderful woman that I gave you, Christy Marie Trimble McGraw? And what did you do with those three little ones sitting by her? It's going to be the first question. Second question is, what did you do with them? How did you lead them? What did you say to them? Did you bear the message of salvation with them? Did you preach the word of God with them? Were you gentle with them? Did you love them and lead them as I would have had I been there in the flesh? Man, 
realizing that your leaders are thinking this way may make it easier to follow them. May. They're ultimately accountable. One of the things that I appreciated from this passage is that it's not brought out in translation here, but this phrase, they have to give an account, is actually in the original language. They themselves is for emphasis. In many ways, what it's saying is they themselves are keeping watch over your souls, and what is meant there is saying, it's equivalent to saying, no one other than they are keeping watch over your souls. Have you ever thought about your church leadership like that? No one other than they are keeping watch over your souls. That's what he's saying right here. Man, you're supposed to look at your church leadership like that. In church leadership, we're supposed to look at leadership like that. That it's that urgent that we're keeping watch over the souls of our people. And the second thing that comes from this passage that should make it easier to follow is realizing that you have the power to make it either enjoyable or a beating. You have that power. Some of you might actually like the thought of that, and man, I'm going to see how miserable I can make it for this joker. But I suspect that for most of you, realizing that you have that power would help you realize, man, I want to work hard at making this easy. So what you may not realize is your following is active. Following is not a passive thing. It's an active venture. You're not just a passenger on this led and follower, leader and follower relationship. You're an active contributor to this this relationship. And you have tremendous power to determine whether this calling is joyful or beating. There's a henna clause here that in order to this this purpose clause that's not really developed very well in in verse 17b. I want you to look at that. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. This let them do this with joy and not with groaning. Behind that is a purpose clause. It's very difficult to bring out in translation. I'm going to, see, I'm going to do the best I can to sort of help you see what's being said here. Obey and submit to present leadership in order that they may do this joyfully and without groaning. And in order that it will be advantageous for you. Obey and submit to present leadership in order that it will be advantageous to you. This clause, though difficult in translation, difficult in Greek, is a reminder that the welfare of the church family is directly tied to the quality of the response to current leadership. There's a lot at stake for how we lead and how we follow And here I thought would be very appropriate to share some personal testimony before we move into this last verse and dessert. In 12 years, I can say that leading here in large part has been joyful. And that's, I'm not one to stroke or embellish or overspeak something like that. But I can say here that in 12 years in large part, it's been quite joyful. I would say nearly at any given moment, I'm struggling with someone. Christy struggles with me. It's a quiet pain of the pastor's wife and the elder's wives that you struggle with your 
husbands and elders. Nearly at any given moment, I'm struggling with someone who's walked away without a word. Without a word. As someone who's preparing sermons week by week, as if I have to give an account for your souls, it's shocking to me how easily someone can walk away from that with not a word, like you're their dry cleaner. That's a hard burden to bear. It's one of the hardest things of this calling for me, that people can walk away without a word. And the other thing is that people can walk in defiance, unwilling to trust leadership. That people will walk away in defiance, unwilling to trust leadership. That's the kind of pain that I go to bed with at night and then I wake with oftentimes. And it's the hardest part of this calling. And the biggest weight that I carry, that Christy carries with me from day to day. But in large part though, man, you are a remarkable people. A remarkable people. I have some friends from South Carolina that are in a church there that I, Christy and I were in when we were first married. And the pastor, this is like mega church, big mall church. In fact, the pastor there who ordained me said he wanted his church to be like a mall where whatever your flavor you wanted to show up for, the flavor was there. He would put on a, a coat and tie for high church. He'd wear casual clothing for you know, um, contemporary church, and he, he was even going to have like a liturgical church where he'd put on a robe. I mean, it's, but he believed, and still does, that he wants to be all things to all people for the sake that he can win some. And that, man, that's his life's purpose. And I have a lot of respect for this guy, and I enjoy this guy, and he just recently announced that he's going to be retiring in the next couple of years. And a bunch of our buddies from South Carolina have been communicating with me, encouraging me that I need to put my head in my, my, my hat in the ring. And I, I, I haven't said it to them, but I'm thinking, and I'll probably say it eventually, I would have to be a fool. I'd have to be a fool to walk away from this. I'd have to be a fool because this is a delightful people, a joy to lead with a great sense of humor. Thankfully, we all have that sense of humor. Now, verse 8. This is the dessert, and this will lead us into our supper. We're not quite there yet, but we're heading in that direction. Verse 8, I'd like to read it again, and you might think again about how abrupt it is. I'm going to read it in light of verse 7, just for the sake of really taking in how abrupt it is. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. As you remember past leadership, don't miss the point that past leadership, however fine it may have been, if you had some people on your list that you would really consider fine, don't miss the point that you have to remember them. Don't miss the reality that however fine that they were, that they were that ultimately the finest of leaders ends up eventually needing to be replaced. But man, not so of Jesus. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
And as you think about past leaders and as you endure with present leaders and you are face-to-face, as you get to know them and their lives are observable, you're face-to-face with their frailties, you're face-to-face with their Paul Asterbin stuff that comes out of time, like, where'd that come from? You're face-to-face with the inconsistencies where they say they're going to do something that they don't follow through on. You can go back to verse 8. Jesus, though, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Man, that's the dessert. We don't need a sense of humor as we're talking about. All we need is verse 8. We can make a beeline to verse 8 as we're thinking about past leaders, as great as they were who may have let us down, or current leaders, as fine as they may be, they'll let you down and disappoint. His, his perfections, though, they endure. He's not frail. He's not feeble. He's never inconsistent. He never needs replacing. Jesus lives and is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So as you're either considering, remembering, and imitating past leaders, or as you're wanting to be on someone else's list and endeavoring to be that person, and as you're following the difficulty, you're walking in the difficulty of following current leadership, keep your eyes fixed on the ultimate leader of the church, the absolute perfect leader of the church that is Christ. That's the only way you will endure. That's the only way you'll continue. Now, we're going to lead into our supper, and I want to pray first. I want to pray for our current leadership. I want to pray for the future of the leadership of this church. And I want to pray for the other leaders of churches in our community. Let's pray. God, what a wonderful couple of passages here that take us to some things that we can consider this morning in past leaders who led well. God, I'm thankful that I have folks on my list. I'm thankful that I have other people that I didn't mention that I could mention. I'm thankful that I have other people that are living and are healthy right now who will be on my list when they move into their last chapters. And God, I pray for those in this room who don't have a list or have a very short list that we together can be someone's list in faith that we can be leadership that's first of all leading, that's second of all attesting to the word of salvation, that's third observable, and that's fourth worth imitating. God, we turn that over to you. It's not something we can muster. It's not something we can conjure up. But it's something that I beg for, that we beg for together this morning, that we will be that people quick to lead, humbly, feeling inadequate, feeling insufficient, but that we are available and that we show up for decades, for decades. God, I'm thankful, too, for this relationship that you've given us in this church between the leaders and the followers and this delightful environment in this particular church family. So thankful for a church that is so responsive, that's so teachable, that's so eager to follow, that's habitually submissive. God, I'm so thankful for the scandal of being called to this work. God, I pray that 
for myself, I pray this as well for Brad and Scott, for our deacons, for our life group shepherds, for our Bible study teachers, for our family shepherds, that we will have lives that are worth imitating. God, I pray that you would grow faith in us and continue to grow faith in us until our last, last chapters end well. God, we love you and we thank you that most of all, as we follow, as we lead, as we do maybe a combination of both, or that we are fueled by the wonderful perfections of our Savior, our ultimate leader, who never needs replacement, who is not frail, who is not feeble, who is not inconsistent. Father, we fix our eyes on Jesus and enjoy him today. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. There's a passage in Hebrews that's just especially meaningful for me today. It's in chapter 7. It's a passage speaking about Melchizedek. Jesus, our high priest, is compared to Melchizedek. And one of the things that I really enjoy, it's what's developed in verses 15 through 17, 15 and 16 specifically. It's not real clear, but there's a phrase there that I was especially enjoying this week. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. This is speaking of Christ, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. One of the things that we enjoy in our supper is we enjoy Christ crucified. We enjoy this sacrifice that was made. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six 26 says that every time that we take this bread and this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We absolutely do that, but that's not all that we do. We're not just considering his death. We're also considering that he has an indestructible life, that he lives, that he's reigning, that he's ruling, that he's leading right now. We enjoy that together as we take and eat. Let's distribute the elements. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let's take and eat and enjoy our leader. Let's take and drink and enjoy an indestructible life. From Hebrews chapter 13. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Y'all have a great week.